piping down the valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee. On a cloud I saw a child, and he, laughing, said to me, "Pipe a song about a lamb." So I piped with merry cheer, "Piper, pipe that song again." So I piped. He wept to hear. The words come from a poem by William Blake, who died in 1827, but the melody is much older, and so is the instrument on which it is played. And this is a program about musical instruments and their makers. It's an ancient craft and a difficult one, and its recent growth in Ireland is, of course, linked to the folk music revival. In fact, many craftsmen came to their work from the playing side. I started off playing pipes first, and I was interested in making musical instruments. I had made some. Guitars and mandolins prior, prior to attempting to make pipes, but when I started off with a packer set of pipes, which were made by Matt Kiernan, I, I saw that I could, with no great difficulty, try and make a set of drones to go with the with the chanter. You knew a bit about woodworking, Chris. I did know a little bit, and I was willing to go to any lengths to learn more, really. And I, I tried to ask people questions and visited old pipe makers like Matt Kiernan and Leo Rosen and Dan O'Dowd. And watch them working, and try to pick up the little tricks, and then go back home and make plenty of mistakes, and eventually, eventually, you know, come around to something that worked. I started making musical instruments when I was about nineteen. I started making stringed instruments and and repairing violins, and I was in fact apprenticed to a violin maker for a while. Uh, but I became interested in in woodwinds, and in particularly, uh, I became particularly interested in uh, in Ireland pipes. When I heard uh, heard them being played for the first time about eight years ago, and I I made my uh, as I said the first uh, set I made was a set of Northumbrian pipes, but uh, that was more or less as a to to try out my new equipment. You know what I did was when I decided to make inland pipes, I had to raise the money to buy a lathe and uh, the other machinery that I required and the materials and so on. So. I started off. First thing I made on my lathe was two chisel handles, and then I went, went ahead and, and made this set of Northumbrian pipes. And after that, I started researching and making inland pipes, and I've been at those and concert flutes ever since. Eugene Lamb, who works in County Clare, and Bruce Duvey from Spiddle. Bruce, as you may have guessed from his accent, came here from down under, whereas Dan O'Dowd, who makes pipes in Dublin, followed Bruce's tracks in reverse, so to speak. And I went back to Australia and. I formed a couple of piper bands way up Newcastle, Newcastle, up in the north, up near the Barrier Reef, <coughs> and uh, I travelled thousands of miles. Uh, somebody got in the media over there that I was there, and uh, the result is there was cars coming for me and bringing me to Wollongong, Newcastle, Cambria, Melbourne. I was killed travelling and playing those and fixing old sets of pipes that were there. And making reeds, all that sort of stuff. Well, where did you get your pipes <coughs> for your pipe bands in Australia? Did you make them? For the they had they were brought over there. Be old Irishmen brought over old sets. Be old sets like that, but they weren't gone. So I had to make reeds for them. I'd spend a week in this place and a week in another place and so on, getting them gone, uh, making the. Reads and making the quills for the drones, and get them gone, then go off, move off to the next place. And if it were a hobby of mine, I'm not at all in my life working at it. 
I began by describing the instrument makers as a difficult as well as an ancient craft. Bruce Duvet talks about some of the difficulties as they affect his work on flutes. The problem is uh, that most of the flutes that were made in the last century um, are out of tune deliberately because uh, the, the makers found that by making the, the, the first octave slightly out of tune on certain notes they could uh, influence the, uh, the third octave and they could make some of the notes there easier to obtain and better in tune. So consequently you'll find that a terrible lot of old flutes are, 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 are terribly, terribly hard to get in to, to play in tune. And uh, so what, what I did when I started trying to design flutes, first of all I had to get a bore and uh, a set of measurements which would produce the particular type of tone that I wanted, which is very, very difficult because the, the taper in the bore uh, isn't a dead straight taper. It fluctuates. It, it straightens out and changes angle here and there. And depending on where these fluctuations occur, uh, you'll, you'll get uh, different types of tone and uh, the, the important thing is that if you have the bore wrong, you'll have the, the second octave uh, won't be in tune with the first, and secondly, you'll get an uneven volume over the range of the flute, and you might find it difficult to get the bottom note and this kind of thing. You know? So that, that was the big problem, was first of all getting a bore that would work, and then secondly, getting a, a system of holes with, that would give you an even volume over their range and still be in tune. But there's still a degree of inspiration in a handmade flute, would you reckon? Oh, I think it's the same as, as any type of uh, specialised work. You, you have to have an eye for detail, and the only way to develop an eye for detail is to, have, uh, very, is to have great interest in what you're doing. If you're interested <coughs> to the point of fanaticism, as most instrument makers are, um, you, you will uh, discover the, the important factors and, and you'll... you'll keep refining your work until you come up with, with uh, what, you're, what you're looking for. But from what you tell me, say, in the varying uh, taper of the bore, um, there must be an element of luck attached to what tone comes out at the end. Uh, Are you sometimes surprised by a flute you make? Yeah, I must say that I certainly, certainly am. In fact, uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, th there have been many, many treatises written on uh, the acoustics of... of uh, uh, conical bores and the mathematics is terribly advanced and in fact not particularly accurate uh, and the only way that you can succeed uh, in practically any form of mu musical instrument making you're relying on probably 50% sheer hard work 30% uh, or 35% um, uh, research and uh, uh, information regarding what you're dealing with and the rest is in fact a, a, an element of luck you know it's trial and error to a large extent you know or to a, to a certain extent anyway well have you ever made uh, a flute and not like the tone of it and refused to give it to anyone i've made i'd say i've made 30 or 40 of them <laughs> have you and you yeah. just destroy them well, uh, what I usually do is I, I cut them up and I, I, I use the bits and pieces of them for, for uh, in repair work and things like that, you know. What about this one? What does it sound like? Well, I'm fairly happy with this one. This is, this is an E-flat flute that I, uh, that I designed. But, um, I'm not a flute player myself by any means. I can, I can blow it enough to get, get, get a sound out of it, you know.
it's it's easy to fill, you know, even for somebody like me who doesn't play the flute. I I, I play the pipes myself, but uh, uh, also it it uh, it has a good tone, particularly uh, around the bottom, and uh, it's even over its over its volume, um, and it's it's got enough volume to play in a session and stand out. Bruce Duvet down in County Galway. Eugene Lamb also makes concert flutes, and some time ago he made a rather unusual instrument. The story began when he discovered a reproduction of an illustrated advertisement from the Dublin Courant of 1747. The illustration, the first incidentally ever to appear in an Irish journal, depicts a gentleman with a flute fashioned to act as a walking stick. Beneath the illustration appears the following message. George Brown, musical instrument maker, dwelling at Mr. Hyans, Cutler in Crane Lane, Dublin, has by his skill and industry brought that instrument called the German flute to that degree of perfection that the most knowing in that art can find no defect in them, and by a new machine of his own invention, gentlemen may, with the greatest facility, find all the notes of the said instrument, from the highest to the lowest. He also makes excellent German cane flutes for the accommodation of those gentlemen that would recreate themselves abroad, and as he has been for this considerable time past a successful practitioner in this art, and has wrought for the most eminent masters in his travels through Germany, Holland, Flanders and England, humbly hopes gentlemen such as have occasion for said instrument will favour him with their custom, and they may be assured of getting as good instruments from him as is possible to be made. The cane flute was included in the illustration, and Eugene at once set to work. I made this one, yeah. It's got a carved handle. But the, the trick is not to show the tone holes when you're walking. Um, it's got a metal tone. I'll try and play something. Eugene Lamb's reproduction of an 18th century flute fashioned most beautifully as a walking stick and used by gentlemen in the course of their recreation. Like Bruce Duvet and Dan O'Dowd, Eugene Lamb is a maker of pipes, and in discussing them he made the point that the term illan pipes does in fact cover two quite different instruments. This is a set of pipes now, and John, I'm just working on it. It's a flat set of pipes, which means it's pitched below the normal concert pitch D. It's in the key of C, and it's made from lignum vitae, and I'm just trying to get some reeds going in the chanter. They're much quieter than the modern concert pitch sets, and they're totally different from what people imagine when they hear that you play illin pipes. They imagine that it's going to be a bagpipe sound, but it's quite, you know, man- mannerly sound. <laughs> That reed needs just a little adjusting now by squeezing the brindle in and make it less hard. As you Uh, say, it doesn't have the wild sound of the bagpipes. No, it's much more mannerly, you know. Less uncouth. This will be used with other instruments, presumably. Yeah, I suppose it's best described as a parlour instrument. The the modern um, concert pitch pipes were evolved mainly in America by the Taylor brothers who emigrated there to Philadelphia from Drogheda in order to fill large concert halls. And they made big bore pipes and loud 
loud sounding pipes. But prior to the, the that revival of of the, the concert pitch pipes, these were the, the common pipes used in, in Ireland, played in small houses for dances and, you know, for personal amusement. Well, is this the kind that the modern Ilham Piper will play? Now, this is a quieter pitch, the, the flat pitch pipe. The modern, most modern Ilham Pipe players who play in groups play concert pitch D. Next, an instrument that sounds a little like the Ilham Pipes, but isn't. As a clue, I can tell you that it would have been quite familiar to the medieval music lover. It's the hurdy-gurdy, an instrument that first appeared in Spain back in the 9th century and was subsequently adopted by the French. Hurdy-gurdies have recently become available again to folk musicians, thanks largely to Paul Doyle, who works in the IDA Craft Centre in Strokestown, County Roscommon. In uh, 1976, I was making folk instruments, and um, I met a girl in London who uh, showed me um, some LPs with uh, hurdy-gurdy music on them. She was a fiddler herself, and she uh, expressed a wish to have an instrument like this. And uh, I went along to the museums, the Victorian Albert Museum, and uh, studied them very carefully through the glass. And um, eventually I found somebody who had uh, an original instrument, and I measured up the important um, points of it, the key box. You can see all the rows of tangents and keys here. And um, I made a square box-shaped one as a prototype with um, setting all the uh, points up. And uh, it didn't work too well, but um, after that I seemed to be able to make them all right. It's a very, very simple uh, principle. The um, wheel acts as a violin bow on the strings and keeps them all going... Uh, vibrating in unison. Um, the drones are you have four drones and two uh, melody strings. The um, the two large drones here are the bass, and the uh, the other ones here are the uh, the melody uh, the uh, octave above the bass. And you have uh, stops then for the. Yes, you can you can set them in or out as you want. In fact. Um, without uh, any drones at all, or in fact with only one melody. It sounds like that. And two melodies. If you want it slightly out of tune. And then drones. Paul Doyle doesn't confine himself to making hurdy-gurdies, of course. This here is a mandolin. Um, as you can see, it's in its final stages. It's uh, It's got its finish on it. So I've now got to rub that down and make a nice um, flat finish and then shine it up till uh, it's got a high gloss on it. This is, in fact, French polished. It's got quite a nice ring on the sample. You can judge it by that, by tapping it. Yes, you can, yeah. Um, the back is made from yew, which is a very uh, exotic wood to use for a uh, musical instrument. But yew was used traditionally uh, from around the 14th century until the 17th century for the backs of lutes. They reckoned it was the best wood to use. Um, in fact, I don't know of any musical instruments that are made since then with the yew. But um, I managed to come across quite a large supply of it um, when I was in England, and uh, I've used it for these four mandolins that I'm doing now. 
The bazooki has been growing in popularity recently among folk groups. It's often thought of as a Greek instrument, but its connection with that country is in fact rather tenuous. Turkey was the probable birthplace of the bazooki, or bazook as it was then, more than a thousand years ago. But the instruments played here today reflect the individual designs of makers such as Paul Doyle. Well, this instrument is the bazooki, the famous bazooki. Um, it differs a lot from the uh, the Greek bazooki um, in that it's got a um, flat back. Uh, the fact that you, the whole instrument is quite different from the um, the Greek bazooki. I don't know why it's called a bazooki, really. Yeah, I've, I've developed this one myself, um, a large body, um, around 19 se- beginning in 1978, I think it was. I was restoring uh, an old cittern, um, an 18th century instrument with ten strings on it. It had a lute back, which was um, made like a, a boat um, of nine strips. In fact, there were more than nine strips on the back, but um, it had very nice fret-cut rows on it, and it had a very dynamic sound. And while I had this open, I uh, measured up all the proportions um, and did a drawing first. Uh, I then redesigned the shape uh, slightly to suit um, the bazooki uh, standard of the period. And um, I lengthened the neck because the neck of the citron is a lot shorter and um, made a 26-inch string length, which is the um, required length for the bazooki and that was how I came up with that design as you can see it has a D-shaped sound hole Um, that of course comes from the name Doyle and um, on the top you have a Celtic inlay Um, that I found out long after I was doing it um, meant peace so it was quite an appropriate uh, symbol for an instrument but that's the trademark of all my instruments the banjola. Um, it's quite a deep body and very uh, short neck, which means it's ideal for Irish music. This is an invention of your own? Yes, this is my own design as well. Um, I came about this one um, in an unusual way. I was um, asked about uh, banjos and uh, so forth, and um, I, I, I mentioned at the time that uh, I wished the um, the banjo skin wasn't there because it was so harsh and you could uh, pick out the mistakes very easily. And um, he said, the customer at this time said, well, okay, then make one with a, a solid front instead of a uh, skin. And, uh, you know, we'll see how that turns out. Is that native wood? It is. In fact, this instrument is made entirely from Irish woods. The neck is sycamore, the back and sides is sycamore. Uh, the front is a... German spruce. Uh, you have to have a good uh, wood for the front because that's the most important part of the instrument. And of course, it's got all the usual uh, Celtic decoration on it.
Whatever about bazookis and banjolas, there's one folk instrument that is indisputably Irish, an instrument which has been played and made here for centuries. According to a 12th century saying, there were three things which were indispensable to a gentleman in his home. A virtuous wife, a cushion on his chair, and his harp in tune. And in the 16th century, the Italian musical scholar Vincenzo Galilei declared, Among the stringed instruments now played in Italy, there is first of all the harp, which was brought to us, as Dante commented, from Ireland, where it is excellently made and in great quantities. A few years later, Francis Bacon, scientist, writer and Lord Chancellor of England, gave it as his opinion that no harp hath the sound so melting and prolonged as the Irish harp. The traditions of harp-making continue to flourish in Ireland today. The one you're hearing now is completed recently by Jan Müllert in Navan. Like so many makers, Jan discovered the secrets of his craft by trial and error. I used to be involved locally in playing the odd night of traditional music with the lads and one night a concert was organised of all Celtic music and there was this chap from the Isle of Man, Charles Garl, and he had an Irish harp made by Mr Inbush from Limerick and he, I got talking to him because I was interested in making a harp so he came down one evening and we had a look at the harp and he offered certain suggestions how to improve on what he had and it started from there I made the first one there and I threw it on the scrap heap <laughs> because it was absolutely useless so then I made a second one with his help uh, you know he, he helped me out with ideas on it and the first harp was sold then I still don't know at this moment where it is it's somewhere in Ireland <laughs> Well, how successful have you been harp making? Have any professionals bought your stuff? Uh, there's a few groups that have my harp. There's one in Brittany, uh, Siskin is the name of the group. Clannet play one of my instruments. Uh, Charles Garten has a record out as well. And a few more professionals that don't actually perform on the Irish harp have my instruments, yes. This seems to be the crucial part of what you're working on now. Yes, they're the ever-returning curse of the blades, as you will find out with any harp maker, because they either are pressing too hard against the string, which wears out the gut, which is pretty tender, especially this time of the year, and it starts to fray, and the string just breaks. And Or either they are not pressing hard enough, which means that the string will not give a clear sound, so to overcome that on this particular model I've, I fixed plastic on the blades which took away some of the friction all right but uh, it's just not very nice looking so I've come up with a different way of making the blades now which is just combination of 1-8 round brass all welded together and it provided a solution for both it's easy to adjust and uh, it also is a nice polished round surface which doesn't wear the string. Well, does this mean you're constantly trying to improve on the existing pattern of the instruments? Yeah, well, I, I stick 
to the basic model that I have I have come up with a certain curve for the tuning pins and they are to my opinion give the best uh, out of each string like each string is made a certain gauge and they are supplied always to that gauge so you can play around a bit with the string length but there is a certain length that the string will sound the best now I've come up with this particular curve to my opinion is the best Jan's harps are made entirely from native timber it's all solid wood uh, it's all native sycamore and the soundboard is the only part that's important it's either cedar wood or spruce does the wood have to be specially treated when you say local sycamore or native sycamore well those planks for for the instruments I'm making at the moment they come from trees that were felled about six years ago locally and I, I regularly buy trees to keep up the stock any particular trees sycamores does, uh, do they have to grow in any particular place or? no it's not the place with the size like anything smaller than let's say 18 inches uh, would be pretty useless because the planks would have too many knots and you wouldn't just get enough proper stuff out of it be too much waste and you take it from the tree yourself down to this do you take it from the tree with the chainsaw yes <laughs> to the sawmill mm. I just store away the planks in the shed and let them air dry and give them at least a year per inch just air dry Eugene Lamb by contrast can't hope to go out and pick up his raw material with the chainsaw as a maker of woodwind instruments he's obliged to look much further afield for his timber to get a good tone wood, you have to go for things like African blackwood or lignum vitae or other, other woods like rosewood, which have a combination of very tight texture and, and high density. And this is, this is essential in making a good woodwind instrument. If, if you don't have a dense wood with a tight texture, it, it works almost like a silencer of a car. Little pores in the wood absorb the sound and muffle it and that's the reason you need those properties. It just so happens that most of the good timbers grow far away, Africa, Central America, um, South America, so it's always difficult to import timbers in the quantities that, that, uh, you know, that I would need. It's more than just one or two sticks, but not quite big enough to justify a major shipment. So it's always a problem. In the past... People thought that the, the reason Stradivarius or Amati or Guarnerius, the great Cremonese violin makers, made such great instruments was that they had some hidden ingredient in their varnish. This was the, the little bit of a, of a recipe that people didn't understand and they thought they could never copy the instruments like the old great makers did. In recent times, it's with, with more knowledge of the acoustics of instruments and how exactly woods vibrate and how sound, sound is transmitted, it's known that the violin makers of that period were, were in complete control of their materials and they were in complete control of the sound they could produce. They knew, for instance, that if they got quarter-cut timber, which is sawn from the log in a radial direction, and if the, if the growth rings were farther apart in one piece than, than in another, that they'd have to uh, uh, accommodate for those changes by increasing the thickness of the belly of the fiddle. 
So it, what I mean by that is that it, it didn't mean that they had any great measuring techniques or micrometers or depth gauges, but they knew when the material differed and how to, to, how to accommodate differences by changing the designs. For the belly of the fiddle, they'd be using spruce, and for the, the back and sides of the fiddle, they'd be using maples. Sycamore is our nearest equivalent to that. They'd try and pick them from the northern slopes of mountainous districts because on the northern slopes, because there'd be little, littler, was a, less, a lesser amount of sun, the tree would grow slower, and hence the annual rings would be tighter together. And this they'd need to produce a good, uh, good timber with good resonance. And they, they knew all these things, and I think that's how they, they made good in instruments. Apart from wood, the constituents of the traditional Cremonese violins were, of course, gut for the strings and horsehair for the bow, a fact which prompted this caustic remark from the 19th-century English poet Tom Hood. Heaven reward the man who first hit upon the very original notion of sawing the inside of a cat with the tail of a horse. Before leaving the subject of the basic materials for making musical instruments, Here's an odd story from Anthony O'Brien, who, with Andrew Robinson, makes stringed instruments in Dublin. It's this lump of old fence post over here, which came from Ackle Island, it's sort of grey, gnarled, split-looking stuff. And this, in fact, is a piece of Pernambuco wood, which is what is traditionally used for making bows, and is now very hard to get. And um, it's very dense wood indeed. And um, when you split it on the inside, it has this rather nice reddish-brown colour. And how do you recognise it? Um, well, I didn't recognise it. We were given, uh, given it by a friend um, who has a cottage on Ackle Island, Yvonne Boydell. And um, this apparently was washed up from a Spanish ship which was wrecked off Ackle sometime in the early 18th century. And a whole load of the stuff, how it floated, I don't know, but a whole load of it floated into Ackle. And they've used it as fence posts. And a friend of hers, actually, I think, must have split a bit of one of the fence posts and said, hey, that looks like Pernambuco wood. And she gave us a log of it. And it's absolutely beautiful wood to work with. It has this rich orangey red when you cut it. And then as it's exposed to the air, it goes deep purple, almost black. Unfortunately, this wood is so split that we can only use it for very small things. We, um, I think the only thing I've used it for in an instrument was as a a nut at the top of um, a bass vial we made this year and I made um, a tuning peg out of it but I only it's very hard to get a bit big enough that hasn't got splits in because it's been a fence post for about 200 years so it's the Ackle Island Pernambuco wood
Bibliolier Carlino Castiurame, played on a lute by Andrew Robinson. One of the difficulties with the lute is that it's so hard to keep in tune. This factor may have contributed to its decline in popularity from the 17th century. In 1727, the French musicologist Johann Matheson commented scathingly, We pay twice for the best lute pieces, for we have to hear the eternal tuning that goes with it. If a lutenist lives to be 80 years old, surely he has spent 60 of those years in tuning. The worst is that among a 100, especially amateurs, scarcely two are capable of tuning accurately. Then, in addition, there is trouble with bad or spliced strings and trouble with frets and tuning pegs, so that I have heard that it costs as much in Paris to keep a lute as it does to keep a horse. Harsh words, indeed. Well, we've heard from the makers of stringed instruments and woodwind. It's time now to turn to the percussion section, which brings us back to the animal kingdom. You need gut and hair for fiddle-making. For barons, on the other hand, it's the skin of the beast. Porrick McNeela from Rahini. What makes a good baron is the skin. It depends totally and entirely, I feel, on the skin, and I think most baron players will agree with me. Uh, the best skins I find are goat skins and seeker skin, deer skins. And if, unless somebody uh, shoots one and gives you the skin, that is the only way you're going to get a good skin. Um, a good baron will fetch up to a hundred pounds with a skin like that, because a baron is a bass drum, and unless you have a bass sound out of it, bass tone, it's no use. A baron to a light skin will dry out very quickly at a session or in heat and uh, that tends to go too high which is no use no use when you just have to keep wetting it but the heavy skin will give you a good heavy deep tone and the best skins for that are the, are the goat skins and uh, deer skins greyhound skins are used as well and if you can get a heavy enough gray skin, greyhound skin they are quite good um, I find uh, with the lighter goat skins, what are called skived goat skins, that uh, they tend to dry out too quickly. Uh, they are quite common and are imported quite easily, quite easy to get. Um, at the same time, if one knows how to handle a skived skin, you can make a very good baron out of it. The healthy state of the instrument maker's craft has led to the formation of a guild, Kualath Kjol Kjardaha, whose chairman is John Fry. The Musical Instrument Makers Guild was founded in July 1977 with the help of Deanne Hamilton and the Crafts Council of Ireland for the general promotion of instrument making in Ireland. Mainly this has uh, resulted in a sort of social interaction between musical instrument makers and a great deal of exchange of ideas and information. And I think this is in no small way connected with the increase in standards I've seen in some of the instrument makers. In this respect, we are, we are currently engaged on devising a category of master instrument maker in the medieval guild format, whereby a candidate can present a masterpiece instrument for examination and should it be found to be of a suitable, suitably high constructional and musical quality, then he will be entitled to call himself a master instrument maker. Irish instrument makers now draw their clients from all over Europe, and they expect and receive good prices for their wares. However, one suspects their greatest satisfaction lies in the challenge and fascination of the work itself. I think to make good instruments you have to be an extremist. You have to 
there must be no stage of the process where you'll say that'll do you know it can never do it has to be I think to make instruments successfully you have to complete the instrument in your mind first and then pick up a piece of timber and at no stage stop and say that's far enough if you're interested <coughs> there's a point of fanaticism as most instrument makers are um, you, you will uh, discover the, the important factors and, and you'll, you'll keep refining your work until you come up with, with uh, what, you're, what you're looking for Finally, let's turn from the makers to the instruments themselves and to the flute we heard at the start of the program. Instruments are at the heart of the subject, since it's through them that we, whether as performers or listeners, can enter the world of music, that magical world of colour and excitement and varied emotion. Piping down the valleys wild, piping songs of pleasant glee, on a cloud I saw a child, and he, laughing, said to me, Pipe a song about a lamb. So I piped with merry cheer. Piper, pipe that song again. So I piped. He wept to hear. <laughs> <laughs> 